You're listening to an Anazal Ministries podcast. Have you ever wondered about the age of the earth? Well, if you're looking for a podcast with all the answers about creationism and the age of the earth, this can help you better understand your faith, then you've come exactly to the wrong place. But if you're looking for a show that will ask bigger questions, struggle with some differing opinions of smart theologians, and leave you clueless, then you found the perfect show for you. Hey guys, this is a show designed to give you more questions than answers. I'm Joshua Knoll, and I am just a dummy who loves God and theology and hopes to show my love for God by studying and thinking deeply about topics that people smarter than me have been thinking about for thousands of years. We have been going through this where I started in Genesis 1 and just any word that made me think of a theological topic. We just talked about that topic, not interpreting the Bible, not doing the hermeneutics, just doing a, you know, the word God kind of makes me think of God. Let's talk about the theology of God. The word water makes me think of like baptism. We haven't done that yet, but I should. That's a good one. We stopped the last month. We did an episode with Brandon Knight to discuss um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and his theology. And then we discussed a big debate that I, it's personal to me. I really love between Martin Lloyd-Jones and John Stott. Well, now we're back for one more going through the Bible, seeing what word sticks out. And the next word that stuck out to me when I go through Genesis 1 was the word day. We've talked about evolution before, but we didn't get into some of the day age, different theories about what does the Bible mean when it says day in Genesis 1? Is it talking about eras of time? Is it talking about one day this happened, a few thousand years this happened, or is it saying six consecutive days? What does it mean? We're going to talk about all that kind of stuff today. Let's go get a little bit more to some of that creation evolution stuff, but focusing more on the age of the earth and what does the Bible mean when it says day. And if you're like me and you've heard all this stuff way too much, good news, I'm not going to focus just on what are the different theories that you already know about. I want to sit there and say, why does it matter what we mean by day? Why does it matter if it's a thousand years, if it's one day, if the earth is 6,000 years or 10 billion years? How does that affect the gospel? How does that affect what we believe about the Bible, God, Jesus, anything important? Or is it just stuff that people like to argue about on the Internet? So we're going to kind of discuss all of that, go through the history of what we've meant by day. And again, we're not going to do the hermeneutics of what does this word yom in Hebrew mean? We're not going to do that. We're going to go through what smart theologians have done with this to make sense of their theology of creation and how that impacts other theologies like our hermeneutics, like our Christology, right? Like um, trying to think of some of the other ones, eschatology, it affects the our theology of original sin, you know, systematic theology proper. All of these things are affected by what do we mean by the word day and how do we understand this creation thing here? So we're going to kind of get into it a little bit. First, we are going to talk about what the other beliefs are, what they all are. Um, and I'm not going to give my own because I don't I don't have a strong stance. You know, I'm just a dummy. Uh, I like seeing what other people thought and how their beliefs impacted things. And I kind of pull a little bit here and a little bit there to what I think best practically helps me in my faith today. So I do a lot less. I think I have the right answer and a lot more. Here's how these ideas helped other people. How can they help me? That's kind of where I'm at personally. So we'll get into that. Um, but we're doing this now, going back to Genesis, finding the next word day. The next episode, I'm going to go back off script. We're not going to be looking for the next word to inspire me. We're going to be talking about Christology. In honor of Christmas, we're going to talk about who do you say Jesus is? Who have famous theologians for thousands of years argued about Jesus? And what have they said about who he is? What do we need to believe to be Christian? And what can we have a little bit of wiggle room when it comes to who Jesus is? So that'll be next, not next week, next episode. So two weeks, tune back in for that around Christmas time. For today, we're going to discuss the word day. Yep. Just one word, day. I feel like uh, Sesame Street. 
the word of the day is day. Um, we've discussed creationism before. We mentioned that we talked about should God create, does everything have to be created from nothing? Could God have had helped? Could God have used evolution? So again, go back, check out that episode. Today, we're going to be talking about what is it? Did God do all this in six days? Did he do all this in an instant? Did he do all this, you know, one day, then wait a million years, did another day? What did he do? So going back through some of the popular theories, St. Augustine's one we have to look at. Him and his teacher, St. Ambrose, had some significant disagreements. Ambrose actually did believe literally God created the seven days, the earth, 6,000 years, all that kind of stuff. St. Augustine didn't think the earth was that old. He thought it was much younger than what the Bible was making out to be. So he took a more figurative reading of the Bible because he didn't think it could be that old. He actually kind of believed that God created everything in an instant, like all at once. And what we get in just as one with the seven days was more God structuring it so that humans and angels can understand it better. He also has some interesting angel theories. Um, if you notice that light comes before the sun. So Augustine's theory is that that could be angels were the light, right? God made the angels on that day. They were the light. And that's why throughout the seven days, you see, you know, it was day of the night. It was really the angels coming and going to visit creation. Um, what kind of one of his interpretations of Genesis one, which gave him a pretty unique stance on the theology of creation that we're going to talk about. Um, another one is the day age theory. So that is the word yom isn't the word, for, you know, the Hebrew word. Again, I said, we're not going to do all that hermeneutics, but you do have to understand that to understand this theological theory. Um, the word yom sometimes is used to mean thousands of years to means an era of time. Sometimes it means a day. Sometimes it means an era of time. So they'll say that this means era. So the first era, the second era, the third era. We have the gap theory. Um, it's been off some different grammatical stuff in the Hebrew, as well as the fact that the first day isn't said first day in Hebrew. It's said the one day this happened and then the other ones say second third fourth so why did it say one day instead of first day and they kind of theorize that in between the first second day a lot of stuff happened or in between verse one and verse two before the first day one or whatever one day a lot of stuff happened in before day one so that's kind of their theory that's what they run with um of course you also have your fundamentalist theories that we're going to talk about that mostly you know the Earth's this amount of years, 6,000, 10,000, you know, younger Earth. There's also old Earth fundamentalists. We're going to talk about Tim Keller's view that he believed in old Earth, but he still thought Genesis 2 onward literally did happen. There was a first man named Adam. Um, a lot of people don't believe that. A lot of people do believe that. Um, and we're going to talk about how the fundamentalist theories, when we're talking about like what literally happened, how that fueled some of evangelicalism and how some of what started evangelicalism actually goes against some of these fundamentalist interpretations. So if you're evangelical Christian, you grew up your whole life hearing this story, it might be interesting to know that some of the reason evangelical, the second wave, the new evangelical movement started was actually in reaction to people not believing science hard enough. So I want to talk about some of that as we go through um, and, and just thinking about what a day is. So again, not doing the hermeneutics, but just to kind of break down what these are before we get into it a little bit deeper on how they came to the theories. St. Augustine, creation happened all at once. Bible's figurative to kind of give us an interpretation. Day-age theory, the word yom actually doesn't mean day, it means era. So they're saying each of this is an era of time. The gap theory, there's a gap between Genesis 1 and 2 where millions of years happened before day one or, you know, between day one and the second day. And then the fundamentalist theories that all this happened about 6,000, 10,000 years ago happened literally as it said. And we're going to use that to springboard into talks about what it means to be evangelical today 
in America specifically, because a lot of the stuff doesn't have the same debates in other countries. America debates a lot of this creation evolution stuff. Other countries, the church is kind of like, yeah, no, evolution happened, dude. So this is more of an American debate than it is other places, but that doesn't mean that it's not worth our time. And it doesn't mean that these other fundamentalist arguments aren't worth value. A lot of people who believe this literal interpretation and stuff, which I'll be honest, I don't buy into it, but a lot of those people are way smarter than me that do believe it. And they have good reasons for believing what they do. So I just being a dummy, I'm not going to say I'm right. They're wrong. I'm going to say, here are the different beliefs. Here's how they got to them. And just kind of break it down so we can all ask questions about how this impacts what we believe and what we do with that today. So again, starting with St. Augustine, um, we mentioned Ambrose believed much like fundamentalists today do. So it's not, it's not true to say that the young earth fundamentalist argument is a new thing. That's not, it's been here since the second, the generation right after the apostles, like two away from Jesus, at least. That is when that's been around. It's been around for a long time. It's also not true to say the speed of reading the Bible only came around when evolution did because we wanted to make sense of an old earth because, again, Augustine, we're talking like 400, 580, like a thousand years before we discovered evolution, figured that out. Yeah. So none of these beliefs actually revolve around whether evolution is true or not. It's actually a struggle with how the Bible words things that's been here from before Jesus even, but at least since the time of Jesus and apostles, we've been trying to figure out what to do with these words and what does it mean and what how what do we believe about creation? This debate does not center around evolution. It does center around hermeneutics and what do we do with the Bible? Augustine had a really hard time understanding the first three days happening before the sun was created. It means there was days that just didn't really have time. How was there day and night? What do you mean by day and night without a sun? Like that doesn't make any sense. Um, you know, I mentioned that he thought the angels could have been the light that was created before the sun and that they would come and go in between days to get the time. But even that he doesn't seem fully bought into. He thinks whenever it says God created the heavens and the earth, that's probably when he created angels and something else is meant when it said God created light that doesn't have anything to do with the sun or the angels, which is confusing. How do you create light without sun? How do you create light without any like what, what do you mean by light there in that situation? So it's one of those things of this literal reading does have this hurdle to do with what is meant by that. Now, a more figuratively reading, like what Augustine had and a lot of our more progressive thinkers today, it's easy. You know, this is a, a type of literature that's set up to reflect itself. You'll see the light here, and then you'll have the sun. You'll see waters were separated, then you have the oceans. So the it, it's not quite a poem, but it's kind of structured like a poem where you look at day one, day seven, you look at day two, day six, day three, day four. They all kind of match up one half to the next. Um, and, and I actually think it's important to point that out if you're going to do this more figurative interpretation like Augustine and other believers today do. Um, again, Augustine thought that all in one instance, he thought that God wouldn't sit there and do day one. I'm going to do it because he didn't believe that God experienced time the way we did. So why is God doing consecutive one day, two day, three day? He also didn't believe that God got tired. He didn't think that God literally needed a nap on day seven. He thought that was ridiculous. God's all powerful. Why would an all powerful being need a nap? Why would a being without time do things in consecutive time order? So we thought God created everything in an instance and he gave the structure to help us create meaning out of what was created and to give significance to the day of the Sabbath. So we thought it was all figurative around that and that God created everything in one instance. And it was ridiculous to think that the earth could be as old as 6,000 years old. He thought it was much younger. Um, 
What's interesting is that Augustine also in his um, he has a couple of different writings. He has a few of d- interpretations of Genesis, mostly what he thought the meaning of it was. But later on, he did what he called his literal interpretation of Genesis, which I definitely think everybody should read. What he meant by literal is way different than what a lot of people today mean by literal. He didn't mean this is literally what happened. He went through like literal meaning more like a plain reading of the text. What does it say if you're just reading it for what it says? Um, And she still would take not as this actually just happened this way. But in that, one of the things that he says that's really interesting is he criticizes a lot of Christians of their time because they were attacking what's called atomism. So well before we discovered the atom, there was a philosophy that everything was made up of little parts called atoms. So there was a philosophy that came way before the science. I think we talk about that in another episode. If not, we talked about that on my other podcast, whole church podcast. So definitely check that out. But a lot of Christians were combating the idea of atomism because they thought it undermined the idea of God. That everything was made up of little parts. He's like, no, God made everything special. Everything has their own soul, all this other stuff. We can't just minimize everything to tiny beings. The, the Christians had a lot of struggle with atomism. Look it up. We don't have the time to get into it today because it's not really the main focus of the day. What is important about it, though, is that Augustine, because all this was happening, wrote that he really thinks Christians should butt out of topics like science and history and a lot of the stuff that we don't know any, we aren't experts in. Because so, because Augustine's word, I don't remember the exact quote, but he, he, he more or less, uh, Augustine had the idea that Christians made Christianity look foolish because a lot of people who aren't Christians have great ideas and have a great understanding of how the world works, even better than some of us do. So to him, it was important that we took our time to only say what the Bible says, to focus on that and not to try to fit in other stuff and to make sense of it and to make like a science of, oh, no, it was 6,000 years. If we take the genealogy, that wasn't around in his time. People didn't use the genealogy to age the earth yet. So that's interesting. But he did heavily criticize Christians for speaking up where they don't know everything. He says we need to just stick to what we do know, what the Bible says and what it's teaching. And what it's teaching here is not this is the exact age of the earth. It's not teaching. This is exactly how things happen. It's not teaching atomism or against atomism. It's not speaking on that at all, according to Augustine. So he really thought that Christians basically needed to just shut up when it came to that kind of stuff. Um, and he wrote about that in his literal interpret his, you know, air quote, literal interpretation of Genesis, which wasn't what we mean by literal today at all. So moving on the gap theory, um, Thomas Chalmers, he took this idea from an Arminian theologian. Um, Arminians are those who kind of focus on free will. They don't believe in this predestination kind of thing that Calvinists do. So Arminian theology is kind of a, a reaction to Calvinist theology. So the Calvinist theology is the predestination, the total depravity, the whole tulip, if you've ever heard of that. That is what Calvinism is. Arminian is like the opposite of that, kind of reacting to that, but still Christian. Um one Arminian theologian, Simon Episcopius, I'm probably saying that wrong, had this idea with the gap theory because they wanted to keep to a literal idea of the earth being created, all of that stuff. They wanted to keep to the Bible happening exactly as it says. So they looked for it in the text. And when he saw in the text that um, the end of the first verse of Genesis 1 in Hebrew has a rebia, a rebia, I'm probably not saying that wrong. And there's a wow at the beginning of the second verse. So this indicates that the first verse is its own thought, its own separate thing. Into the second verse is starting a whole new thought, was was his idea. And since the grammatically that structure is there, he thought that maybe there was a long time before where God says he created the heavens and the earth, 
in between that and day one, because the second verse doesn't say on the first day God did this. It says one day God did this. There's also a lot of archaeological evidence to support this, where you'll find Genesis 1, 1 separate from the rest of the text. Sometimes you'll see Genesis 1 on its own away from the rest of Genesis. And we find that the text used, the, the, the type of literature, the genre is older than the rest of the Bible. We find that the, or most of the rest of the Bible, we find that the language used older than rest the most of the rest of the Bible. So Genesis 1 seems like it's probably something separate from archaeology. Genesis 1, 1 also seems like it could be separate from Genesis 1, 2 onwards. Um, in the early like 1950s, mid 1950s, this was actually the, the biggest like held belief among conservative Christians. Those, those who are like the more conservative wanting to keep to the Bible being strictly literal. Most of them believe the gap theory today. Most of your fundamentalist Christians actually heavily criticize this as being, you know, too trying to accommodate evolution, too progressive, trying to make the Bible what it's not. But at one point, this was the biggest fundamentalist theory was the gap theory. Um, and it was popularized again by Thomas Chalmer. So, yeah, that's always a fun, important thing to think about. <laughs> but um, just going forward from that, you you actually have even um, another reason we know is one of the more popular ones. So 1917, the Scofield Reference Bible, which is an incredibly important Bible, it actually referenced the gap theory in its commentary on Genesis 1. So yeah, a very strong, common held view in the early to mid 1900s, especially in the 1950s. This was what most of your fundamentalist Christians believed. The day age theory is the next one we're going to talk about. Um, this one kind of became more popular after the Scopes trial here in America. So in America, John Thomas Scopes, he was a teacher in a small town in Tennessee who basically reported himself. They were trying to, the real news is that they were trying to make their little town popular in a tourist destination. So they were trying to do something to bring people to their town. So they started a big legal case. And John Scopes reported himself as it said he might have taught evolution. He wasn't really sure, but he reported himself anyway, because the state of Tennessee declared it was illegal to teach evolution. Um, so what's interesting. So then the state, you know, whatever you have William Jennings Bryan's, who was a Democratic presidential nominee a few different times. And this was at a time where the Democrats were like the more conservative Christian perspective, like the fundamentalist things. Um, if you're in America, that might sound weird. If you're not, you're just like, yeah, okay, sure. So William Jennings Bryan's, he was the prosecutor. He was, you know, we can't teach evolution. How dare they do this? We can't have any of the stuff we have to stick to. Traditional Christian things need to be taught in schools. Kind of his stance there. He combated John Scopes, big legal trial. You can look it up. This isn't a legal podcast, although I might do that one day because it would be a lot of fun. But sticking with the theology, because this trial was so popular, William Jennings Bryan's view of the day age theory became really popular. So he wasn't actually using it to justify evolution because he did not believe in evolution, but he did believe in the day age theory that Genesis 1 1, when it says day, actually means a period of time, like thousands of years, maybe millions. So he believed in an older earth, but still a fundamental creation, non evolutionist kind of perspective. Um, he popularized this theory. And ever since the Scopes trial in America, the church has been really split over the issue of creation or evolution. You know, can you even be a Christian if you do this? It's because this trial was so toxic and so polarizing that the church really split in a lot of different ways all around our country. 
that didn't necessarily travel to a lot of other countries who were able to progress and kind of have different thoughts. But what we have here now is we have a lot of people who believe this day age theory, even to today. A lot of people believe the gap theory here today. A lot of people kind of do a more progressive, figurative interpretation. Um, I say like St. Augustine, but not at all like St. Augustine because they're not trying to make the earth younger or anything like that. No weird angel visits. But you do have a more figurative reading is also really popular here in America. The day age theory, again, word day just means age, was here for a really long time. This has become popular. Again, the trial, I think, was in the 1920s or something. So we really see these theories kind of popularize and bust open theological debates all around the United States of America in our churches. Um, and it's one of the biggest reasons for disagreement and disunity and the Church of America today. If Paul was to write us a letter, he'd probably talk about it. Then we have these modernist fundamentalist kind of split, because that's sort of what was going on. So for a long time in America, your main faction in Protestant churches, so getting away from our Catholic Orthodox roots, which all respect to them, but you know they have this more figurative reading, so this might not be as relevant for some of our Catholic and Orthodox believers who might follow this. But in your Protestant circles, you had a lot of people who were fundamentalist and they kind of believed in isolating themselves, not being part of culture, just kind of waiting out till Jesus got here, sticking to exactly the literal interpretations of the Bible, all this kind of stuff. They were very against cultural appropriation. They didn't want anything from the culture to infect their isolated cultures and these fundamentalist groups. Then you had these modernist groups who were taking everything from culture, like implying like cultural music, taking, you know, evolution, different, more progressive thoughts from, you know, uh, social justice theories, all that, and putting it into the church. So we had two different churches within Protestantism, not even looking at your denominations. A lot of the denominations will fall on one of these lines, but you had the modernist and fundamentalist. Then you get this new evangelical group um, really focusing around a, a few different figures, but notably Billy Graham was one of them. And the thought here was, when we're talking like the 1940s, with, again, new evangelical. There was an evangelical movement in the 1730s in Europe. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the new evangelical movement that kind of popularized this evangelicalism in America in the 1940s. Um, what the thought was is they wanted to hold to a more literal interpretation of the Bible, holding to a lot of the stuff, but still be respectful of science, still have some culture, and not completely isolate themselves. So they were trying to not be as liberal as the modernists, but not be isolated and as constrained as the fundamentalists. So they kind of the middle way was this even new evangelical movement with Billy Graham. Um, so, you know, they would take something from the culture, but they're not going to culturize the church. They're going to stick to what the Bible says, right? They're going to have scholarly engagement with this stuff, which is where even Billy Graham said he didn't necessarily dislike evolution or think it mattered. Um, so, so all of these ideas were really important. And the, the debate around, you know, how this scopes trial, what happened with the day age theory, all this stuff is kind of what fueled this, um, of course, there were other things, you know, we're there's a lot of different things that the church and science have disagreed about in the history of America that kind of led to this evangelical movement. Um, you know, thinking even back to Augustine and that quote that we mentioned earlier, I actually do have the quote. Finally, I got it pulled up. So I wanted to read this because this, again, this is, goes back to a lot of what the evangelical, new evangelical movement in the 1940s were thinking about is kind of not neglecting science in our culture, but rather embracing it and staying true to the Bible. So the quote here, it's usually 
This is from St. Augustine. Even a non-Christian knows something about the earth, the heavens, and the other elements of this world, about the motion and orbits of the stars, and even their size and relative positions, about the predictable eclipses of the sun and the moon, the cycles of the years and the seasons, about the kinds of animals, shrubs, stones, and so forth. And this knowledge he holds to be as certain from reason and experience. Now it is a disgraceful and dangerous thing for an infidel a non-Christian, to hear a Christian presumably giving the meaning of Holy Scripture talking nonsense on these topics. And we should take all means to prevent such an embarrassing situation in which people show up vast ignorance in a Christian and laugh to scorn. So he was really concerned that Christians were using Genesis 1 and their interpretations to say a lot about science, a lot about philosophy and stuff that they didn't know anything about, and proving themselves to be foolish and using scripture to back it, which in turn made scripture look foolish. And that was something Augustine was really concerned about. And that's something, again, the evangelical, new evangelical movement in the 1940s was truly concerned about. So that's when we're looking at the theologies. That's kind of the main ones. There's a bunch of other theories that we can look at. Um, I also, if you want a more fundamentalist than me view on this, um, let nothing move you with Christian Ashley, another podcast in the Anazal Ministries podcast group, our network, the AMP network. Um, he's been going through Genesis and I think it was Genesis one or two. He talked about some of these different theories. And I definitely think you should look at that. Um, cause seeing it from a more fundamentalist perspective than myself, I think is really enlightening. It's very helpful. Um, I wish I had more. Oh, Pete ends, Pete ends. He has the Bible for normal people. So if you go through some of his stuff in Genesis, that'll give you a more progressive view than my own. So if you want to kind of look at two different things, um, Pete ends Bible for normal podcast is not part of the AMP network Christian. Let nothing move you. That is part of the AMP network, but I think they're both worth looking at. So check those out. Now kind of moving on to some more practical stuff. Um, I, myself, I went from a more literal perspective to not a literal perspective. So I'm not, in the Christian camp, Christian Ashley, let nothing move you. I'm not in that camp anymore. I'm more in a figurative movement. Um, and people like Tim Keller and C.S. Lewis, other theologians like that, really helped me open up to the reality. There's a lot of people who take scripture serious and not always literal. Um, Tim Keller's view, I think I mentioned on the show before, but I wanted to break this down. He passed last year. He was a great, mo of all modern theologians, he's one of the smartest, in my opinion. Um, definitely one that we need to remember, keeping our church history books. But um, Tim Keller... He was one of the ones who started BioLogos, um, the Gospel Coalition, all that kind of stuff. But he, uh, BioLogos also is really important to check out if you want to see how Christian and science can kind of coexist. But that's a different podcast. Tim Keller, he believed Genesis 1 was figurative, that this was kind of a poem, that it was a certain type of literature for us to read, not as literal. But he believed Genesis 2 onward was literal. So he did believe in a literal Adam, a literal Eve, that God did create everything from ex nihilo, all of that stuff. But because he was able to read Genesis 1 as a poem that wasn't a literal historical account, he still held to evolution. So this theistic evolution view. C.S. Lewis was also theistic evolution. He didn't really break down where he thought the Bible was literal or not. Um, I'm pretty sure he did think Genesis 1 was also a poem, though. So a lot of people look at the literature style of Genesis 1, determine it's a poem. Um, the problem I have with that is it's an ancient enough type of a genre that it doesn't really read as a poem. It reads as something that's older than poems. Hard to understand, but if you do a lot of your archaeology and really look into it, it, it is definitely a different kind of literature. And I think it would be really hard to say it was written at the same time as the rest of Genesis or written by the same person. So those who think Moses wrote all of it, really hard time with that because Genesis 1 is just wildly different language, wildly different genre of literature. And it's just it's weird. But again, smarter people than me disagree with me. So listen to them, learn from them as well. Everyone has 
experience with something like this, right? We've all had loved ones. And I I believe everyone kind of has loved ones or friends who've left the faith because Christians don't believe in science. Christians don't believe this, you know, evolution seems true. And Christians say, if you believe evolution, you can't believe the Bible. So I must not believe the Bible because evolution is true. And we have people who kind of say all this stuff about uh, vaccines. You have a lot of Christians who are weighing in on LGBT. You can't be born gay, all this other kind of stuff. And people see that and say, well, since I do believe science, I can't be a Christian because Christians say all these things have to be true that are very plainly not true. Um, and this isn't my perspective. This is just saying a lot of people feel this way. We probably know someone who feels this way or related to someone or love somebody who feels this way and have left the faith for that reason, which is why I think this is a really important issue to talk about and probably a very personal one for a lot of us. Um, you know, seeing something in scripture that might not line up with how we're taught. You know, some people have gone through, read the Bible and said, wait a minute, I was taught this, but the Bible says this. How does that make sense? And that's kind of led them to leave. Right. Because there's even places in like the Psalms where it says God created everything by slaying Leviathan and now the Leviathan creation came. It's like, Wait a minute. That's not God spoke. You know, um, so there's different creation accounts that don't line up, even if you're just reading the Bible plainly. And that has also caused people to question the faith and leave. You know, Genesis one, God created animals and then made a woman at once. Genesis two, God created man and then he created animals and then he created women. That's caused a lot of confusion for people. And some people even left the faith because they think the Bible's contradicting. The Bible is false in this way. Um, Many people see the church as isolationist. You know, they see that their church is cornering itself off from science, from culture, and kind of doing what old fundamentalists do. And for them, they hate that idea so much they want to separate. For some people, they need that and they want that isolation to be in a community that's going to strengthen them to believe rightly more. But for a lot of people, this isolationist mindset has been really harmful. Um, being taught that they are being persecuted because people don't believe what they believe. You know, for a lot of people, again, it's harmful psychologically. And we have science and stuff backing this. That's it's really interesting to see. Some people might have good reasons for leaving the church because of some of these issues and how we've treated it, not because we're right or wrong about these issues, but because how we treat it. We treat it as such an important issue that it's causing division, it's causing harm to people's psychological state. You know, we're treating it this as it's the end all be all. If you believe, if you believe evolution, then you're smart. If you don't, you're stupid. Well, for a lot of people who read the Bible and think, oh well, that doesn't support evolution. Man, that's harmful. Or for those Christians who say, if you don't believe that Genesis is literal, then you can't believe any of the Bible. Well, then all of a sudden there's a lot of people who can't believe Genesis is literal who are like, well, then I guess I can't believe in Jesus who maybe really need Jesus. <laughs> and you just isolated them from that. So how we've treated this issue, I think, is a lot more concerning than what our actual theologies are. Um, and how we experience this is an important thing that we all should be talking more about. Not just the theology, but a practical theology of how does our experience, what does it say? about how we're treating this issue and what we believe about this issue. You know, we have all had argument division in the church over stuff like that. So we know that it's taught the Bible is, I don't know. One thing that's true though, the Bible is very clear. Love one another. That is what Christians are supposed to be known for, for their love for one another. That's what Jesus said, that they might be one just as we're one. Like the Trinity is one. We talked about the Trinity before. That's how close God, Jesus wants his people to be. And yet people in the church and people out of the church are looking at us talking about issues like this. We're at each other's throats saying you can't really be a Christian. You don't even believe the Bible. We're at each other's throats saying, wow, you're just stupid. You don't even believe in evolution. That's not love. So people are looking at what we're doing with this issue. And that's where I think this practical experience, you know, the Bible says you should be known for your love. The Bible says that Christians have the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, all this stuff, right? And that yeah, if you're saved, you'll be known by your fruit. Well, I'm looking at the fruit of these arguments. 
it doesn't line up with what I'm told Christianity is, right? When I'm looking at how people treat this, it doesn't line up with love, joy, peace. You know, I don't think of someone arguing about creation and evolution and think, oh yeah, they're really joyful and peaceful right now. Not that we don't need to have these conversations, but I think it's very clear from our experience that we're having these conversations wrong, that we're making something more important than it is. Because if it was this important, I think it would be producing better fruit other than what we're seeing with like the Ken Ham, you know, Bill Nye argument on the internet. That was brutal, guys. That wasn't Christian. So I, I think if it was like a gospel issue, I think you'd see more love and more grace in how we talk about it, um, which is where I think our experience should tell us we need to do something different, not necessarily believe something different, but how, what we should do with this should probably be different. When we're looking at the Bible. It does support a lot of different views, you know, the Genesis 2, again, I mentioned how it kind of contradicts Genesis 1, which suggests maybe Genesis 1 isn't literal. Um, you see, the Bible says just as all sinned in Adam. Well, that must mean that Adam's a real person, right? You see our genealogies where someone's taken our genealogies and went back to the earth has to be 6,000 years because we can go person by person by person. But you also see the Bible where one genealogy lists a certain group of people and another one skips some of those people. And we actually know from the type of literal genealogy is, is it's not a person per person. Here's where everyone came from. This person begot this person doesn't always mean that they're their dad. Sometimes it means it's their great, 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 great granddad. Um, so we know genealogies are as, as a genre in this time, not meant to give us exactly who came when, because we can even compare genealogies and see where they skip some people. I think it's probably safe to assume that a lot of people got skipped and that these genealogies weren't meant to age anything. I feel like that's actually just a, a bad use of scripture. And I, and I think because we can see that in scripture, that's your point to saying, yeah, not all of this is meant to be something that's aging the earth, attacking atomism to go back to, you know, St. Augustine. It's not meant to be attacking evolution or supporting evolution. I think we can tell because this stuff isn't there in the Bible, that that's not what it's meant to be for. Um, and, and, you know, we see that the biblical authors, a lot of people point to that as proof that they are mentioning Adam. They're mentioning this stuff. So they must believe all this stuff is literal. Um, my biggest issue with that is, man, I, I mentioned Buzz Lightyear when I'm talking about theology sometimes. Sometimes I'll be like, Captain America said we have to be planted like a tree on the thing. Does that mean I think Captain America's a literal person? No, I'm just assume everybody knows I know that that's not literal. So I don't think someone using an example proves that they believed it was literal. But there is a lot of biblical support for this fundamentalist reading because of stuff like that is in the New Testament. Um, but I think some of these gaps in genealogy, some of these contradictions in Genesis 2 also can support a more figurative reading of Genesis 1. But as we go, there's a lot of um, different implications that we can take from this stuff. I think it's important for us to look at and consider. Um, there's Billy Graham, my man. Um, mainly, what I want us to think about is how these theologies impact other stuff. You know, we mentioned our love and joy for one another and our, our effect on, are we actually, you know, being evangelical? Are we spreading the gospel news of love, joy, peace? Or are we spreading that the church is about hate? Outside of that, there's other theological, more abstract implications I think we should think about. Our eschatology, right? Um, Jesus says in the New Testament, he talks about how he'll be coming back soon. And we see all throughout the Bible, it's clear that we should be treating the end times, eschatology is a study of the end times, like they could be coming any minute. We should be treating with urgency how we're telling people about the gospel because God could come back anytime. And I, I think if we believe this literal six days, 6,000 years ago, I think it actually probably impacts and makes it easier to believe that God's coming back anytime. It's also a literal thing. Um, again, I don't believe that. 
But I do. I can see where taking that literal interpretation actually might help us be more urgent and more ready, because that's where I see a lot of those people who believe like that are also more concerned with the end times and preparing people for that. And that's something I want to take away from how they're interpreting their theology and how it's practically impacting their lives is like, oh, I also want to be urgent like that. Hermeneutics. You know, we mentioned before, a lot of people say if you can't take Genesis 1 literal, you can't take any of the Bible literal. And if you don't take it literal, which, you know, I think that's not true because I think, you know, like myself, I can look at different genres and say they're trying to say different things. Um, but if you're not taking it literally, if there's any part of the Bible you don't take literally, then you have to take the time in your hermeneutics, your study of the Bible and what you believe theologically about the Bible. You have to take the time to say what factors interpret decides how I interpret scripture. Am I just interpreting it however I think makes the most sense or what's fun for me, what I like the best? Or do I actually have a, I'm doing it by genre. If it's a poem, I'm taking this out of it. If it's history, I'm taking it as literal. If it's, you know, or what what are you using in your hermeneutics to determine what you read, the how you read the Bible? I think that's something that our view of Genesis 1 and the word day is actually going to impact all of this. Because if you're kind of taking day to mean age, then okay, Maybe you're flexible with other words. Um, if you mean day has to be day, then you're using the English as literal. Then you have to use English as literal all throughout the Bible. You know, I think what we do with this Genesis 1 really impacts what we do with all of our hermeneutics. It also impacts our doctrine of original sin. If there were no six days, evolution took place, um, there was no literal Adam. Or if there was a, an original Adam, there's probably other original Adams. There's multiple people. Did they all sin? Did everybody sin at once that evolved from a monkey? Or is this more of a figurative story or, you know, you know, so if you're not going to have a literal Adam and everybody came from one person, which genealogically in science, that, that's just impossible. If you're going to do away with science and you're looking at this and saying, OK, let's, let's suppose it is possible. Original sin could be inherited one person by another, just like genes, like blood. But if not, if you still want to believe this idea that everyone sinned because Adam sinned, you have to make sense of it some other way if you believe evolution. So I, I think. What we do with Genesis 1, we do with the word day, thousands of years, evolution, all this stuff is going to impact our doctrine of original sin. Also, it's going to impact our theology of God. Again, going to those questions that St. Augustine even asked about this story of, did God really experience time? Why did he need to do it consecutively? Did God really need a nap by day seven? Does God get tired? Was creation a little too much for him? <laughs> kind of seems like ridiculous things if you believe in an all-powerful God. If you don't believe in an all-powerful God, well, then you have other questions to wrestle with here. Um, or, you know, did God create every, an old earth like 6,000 years ago? He created the earth with fossils that age millions of years. Like, how did God do this? Was God trying to create confusion? Because that tells you something about God, right? Did he plan everything out for evolution? And from the very beginning, he knew what was going to happen. Or does God not know the future? He has no idea what was going to happen. He just kind of put stuff in motion. All of these things, what we mean by the word day, impacts all of these other theologies of eschatology, hermeneutics, original sin, theology of God, all of this stuff, and how we treat one another. Um, also an important thing. Historically, the church has had a lot of division over this issue. We've shown a lot of lack of love, a lot of lack of understanding, especially in America, since the Scopes trial, especially. Um, and the church has to be honest about how long we've disagreed on this. It's not a evolution came up and all of a sudden we started disagreeing. It's been a long time we disagreed about this, ever since Ambrose and Augustine in the 400s. So more than 1,500 years, we've been disagreeing about this in the church. And we have to be honest about that. We can't just act like this is a settled thing and that all of a sudden these issues came up. We can't act like, oh, flood geology came up 40 years ago and all of a sudden people started believing the Bible literally. No, people believe the Bible literally a long time. 
people believed it figuratively a long time. This isn't a new question. It's an old question. The Bible, there's a lot of history in the church that we can point to to determine what, how we need to handle this. There's a lot of reasoning when we look at science and everything around us that helps us do stuff like the whole quadru- Wesleyan quadrilateral we can go through, right? Our experience. Do I, I see things out in nature that seem like it evolves or do I see nature and go, there's no way that this was millions of years old. That actually I think has an important part of how we interpret all of this. Um, is your experience one where you've only been around more progressive Christians and never heard anyone question if the Bible is literal here? Is your experience one where you've never heard anyone question day age theory or gap theory, or you've only ever heard people talk about this as if it's stupid stuff and the Bible's literal? How you've heard like the communities you're in and the people you're around, what they believe, that experience is also saying something about your theology. It's going to make an impact whether you believe it does or not. It does. So all of these things are important to consider. Um, and I don't have any clear answers for what the word day means here. If there was a gap, I don't know. I don't know if it means thousands of years, millions of years. If day one happened after a million years and God created the heavens, waited a while and then did the other stuff. God do everything in an instant. Man, I have, I have no idea. But there are still some big, important things that we can take away from all this that I want to talk about. So our three takeaway questions today, we always do three questions at the end of every episode that we're going to take away, wrestle with these questions and see what we can do with them. First question today is how can we disagree better about this topic in the church? I still think it's important to talk about because it does have implications for other theology. So it's important for us to discuss how old is the earth. But if we're going to discuss that, we need to find a way to do it better because right now we're showing hate. And that's what what God's not what the church, not what Jesus is about. We got to do better there. So how can we disagree about this better in the church? Question two, if Genesis one is not literal, how do we determine when scripture should be interpreted, like how do we decide the way we're going to interpret scripture? So if it's not literal, then how do you know when scripture is the meaning of scripture? You know what I mean? If you're not going to just believe it as it, what literally is there, do you have a method or are you just kind of cherry picking? Question three, do I anticipate the coming of the Lord with urgency? You know, that's something I really admire again for those who believe in more fundamentalist things. They, they treat the second coming with urgency. They treat it like it's important that we get the gospel out there, that we tell people about Jesus. And I think that's something we all need to have. So something I really think is an important takeaway here that we can question, am I doing this well? And if not, is it because my theology is wrong or is it because uh, my heart's wrong? What, what is it? Because something's wrong if you're not treating it with urgency. Because clearly Jesus and the New Testament author have meant for us to treat that with some urgencies. So again, our three takeaway questions, how can we disagree about this better in the church? If Genesis 1 is not literal, how do we determine the way we're going to interpret scripture consistently without cherry picking? And question three, do I anticipate the coming of the Lord with urgency? Because I think it's important that we all do that. So I hope with that, you're all just as confused as I am. <laughs> I hope you're inspired to study these great theologians like Billy Graham, C.S. Lewis, Tim Keller, St. Augustine and Ambrose, all these people better, more deeply on this topic going forward in your own faith journeys. Thank you all so much for joining this dummy on my journey to learn more about God and to love him better. And I hope this has encouraged you to worship God in your own thinking. And of course, to keep on struggling. This was an Anazao Ministries podcast. If you'd like to check out other shows like this, be sure to subscribe to the network.